Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, physicist Helen Chersky talks about the physics of everyday life in her first book, Storm in a Teacup. Helen Chersky is a lecturer in the Mechanical Engineering Department at UCL. As a physicist, she studies the bubbles underneath breaking waves in the open ocean to understand their effect on weather and climate. Helen regularly presents BBC programmes on physics, the ocean and the atmosphere. Recent series include Colour, The Spectrum of Science, Orbit, Operation Iceberg, Super Senses, Daro Brian's Science Club, as well as programmes on bubbles, the sun and our weather. She's also a columnist for Focus magazine, shortlisted for PPA Columnist of the Year in 2014, and has written numerous articles for national newspapers. And Helen's first book, which we're going to talk about today, is Storm in a Teacup, the physics of everyday life. Helen, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. So what's the idea behind the book? It's that there's a whole bit of physics that people don't talk about, so I'm going to talk about it, basically. And the best thing about physics for me is that it's all about patterns, that the same little bit of physics that explains popcorn also gives you cake and the internal combustion engine and catabatic winds off Antarctica and all these other things. Physicists are fundamentally really lazy, although not many of them will admit this. Um, instead of just learning piles of facts, we learn patterns. And then we just apply the same patterns again and again and again. But that's really cool because it means that once you've started, once you've learned the pattern, you can recognise it for yourself and you can use it. So it's not that physics is all about quantum mechanics or cosmology, the two ends of the spectrum. There's this other bit in the middle, which is all classical physics. It's Newton's laws of motion, thermodynamics. And it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's not one of the shiny bits, but it's the bit that's building our modern world because you can build complex systems out of it. So there's this third bit of physics, which is most relevant to our everyday lives. And the thing about it is that because it's universal, you don't need a swanky lab or a particle accelerator to look at it. You can look into your cup of tea or at your toast or, you know, at why your goggles fog up. And you learn the rules of the universe there. And the same rules are also making our wind turbines and our insulin tests and the ocean circulation So it's the universality of physics. And then there's one other thing, which is that what we don't talk about often enough, I think, is that knowing some science changes your perspective. And I think that each of us has three life support systems, a body, a planet and our civilization. And each one is keeping us alive and we need to understand how they work. 
and the bits of how they work and our perspective on them really changes once you know a little bit of physics. That's what the book's all about. It's also fair to say, though, that there's a, a bit of snobbery about everyday science from scientists, would you say? Yeah, there's this kind of thing, oh, it's just the mundane, you know, that's what we give the kids to play with, sort of, you know, oh, well, we're doing proper science over here. But you know what? I had a friend at university whose research project in the maths department at Cambridge was, you know, when you pour honey from a jar and it kind of squiggles around in funny ways, like, that is so hard that that was his PhD. And also, these systems, these everyday systems, they're, you know, that's what makes our weather work they're not trivial and this idea that the toys are only for the kids that's wrong because it implies the adults have stopped learning toys help you learn and if we only let the if you just dismiss it as a kid's thing that means we don't get to play with it and quite apart from anything else i want to play with the toys why should the kids have all the fun so this sort of mundane thing this dismissing you know adults stop asking questions is a habit and if you have the habit of playing with the toys of poking things to see what they do then you can face the real world and not feel intimidated by it it's not something that happens to you it's something you can do something about and playing with the toys is the first step because it's actually everybody can do it and before we get into the book i want to talk about bubbles for a moment and bubbles come up all the way through the book so we'll come back to them but the very idea of saying you know i studied bubbles immediately strikes one as being you know ask the question so what does that actually mean in scientific terms so what what is it about bubbles the first thing is that bubble physicist is a real job it's very important that everyone knows that bubbles are the unsung heroes of the physical world and there's lots of examples but there's one which is uh which everyone's seen it but no one's thought about it right so imagine you've got one of those um cups of cappuccino or something that's got milk foam on the top and a bubble but i'm not talking about soap bubbles here i'm talking about gas bubbles in liquid right if you find a coffee snob uh, and you present them with this cappuccino quite often what they will do is they will balance a spoon on top of the foam and count the length of time it takes for it to sink through the foam now that is weird because if all that the foam is made of is water and air, if you put a spoon on top of air, it would fall straight through. If you put a spoon on top of water, it would fall straight through. But mix them together to get bubbles, and you've got something that behaves completely differently. And that's why bubbles are important. It's because you take these two things which are around anyway, and suddenly you get something new, something that behaves differently. And so we can use bubbles you know, in medicine, for example, or in industry, I study the bubbles in the open ocean and how they break apart and join together and help the ocean breathe. They're little physical workhorses. And they're, once you start thinking about them, you start seeing them everywhere. But they're doing things. They matter. So it is a real job and it does matter. Hey, let's, let's get into strawberry the teacup then. So popcorn, first of all, you start with. So how do we get from popcorn to steam trains and rockets and things? It's one of the, you know, the same little bit of physics gets it all. And if you think about why popcorn pops, you put uh, corn in a pan, if you're doing it in a pan and not a microwave, and inside the corn, the, the shell, the kernel, the sort of husk, is hard and it's impermeable. The water won't go in and out. So on the inside, you've got water molecules that are uh, gaseous, you know, the vapour. And as you heat the corn up, what happens is that those molecules move faster and faster and faster and faster, because that's what temperature is. It's a measure of molecular movement. And then eventually they're hitting the walls so hard and so fast that the outside can't resist it anymore and it bursts apart. And the clever bit is that while all that bouncing around on the inside has been going on, all of that heat has been cooking the inside of the kernel so that when it pops inside out, you've got this beautifully cooked foam, uh, which is very nice. So that's what makes popcorn pop. But then the same principle, the idea that when you heat something up, you just make these little molecules go faster and faster and they hit things harder and harder and they hit more often, is also at the bottom of how rockets work. So in a rocket, you've got propellant, uh, burns, you produce hot gas, 
And that hot gas is bouncing around and it hits both your rocket and whatever's outside the rocket and that sends the rocket forward. And so the propulsion system for a rocket is contained in the idea inside popcorn. And it's not just serious sort of V2-style rockets and Saturn Vs and whatever. There was a guy in, um, uh, you know, in the 1920s and 30s who was a bit bonkers, but he was absolutely... He loved rockets. He wanted to play with rockets, and he was German. His name was Gerhard Zucker. And he looked at this idea... And this is before rockets were reliable. People had got the idea that, you, you know, you set some propell- propellant on fire and it would project something forwards but whether it went forwards or sideways or backwards or just blew up was slightly not you know you had to, it was like playing russian roulette every time but he loved rockets so he tried to build rockets in germany and after a few too many explosions the german authorities were like right we've had enough of this you're off wouldn't let him do it so he came to england and he found um he found some people who would pay for him to make rockets because they were stamp collectors and they wanted a new kind of novelty stamp. So they're like, right, what's going to happen is you're going to invent a rocket that can send post. We're going to invent a stamp that can go on the post. We'll pay for your rocket. And then we get all the shiny stamps that are new and we get to collect them and you get your rocket. Everyone's happy. So he spent a while trying to invent this rocket. It was quite primitive. Took it up to the Isle of Sky. you know, set the thing off. It blew up quite a lot, didn't really ever succeed. It was supposed to be the Western Isles rocket post. They got the stamps, which are now very rare and very valuable. I mean, they did get that. And the thing was, the principle could have worked, right? We, we How could it have worked? It's but, a crazy well, idea. Well, the idea they had was that, you know, between... It started on... They did it on a remote Scottish island because a couple of months before, there'd been a pregnant woman on one island who had needed some medical help and they couldn't get the message to the other island mm. in time to get the doctor. So they were like, we need a faster way of doing things. But wouldn't you just be constantly, every time, have to have a new rocket? There are definitely some logistics flaws. It, the Indians actually did it. India mm. did have rocket posts and managed a few more flights. But the point was, you don't know until you try it. That's the thing about science and engineering. Plenty of people do plenty of things which sound utterly bonkers, and then it turns out they just happen to work. And in his case, he's one of the ones where it wasn't going to happen for him. But he had he gave it a go. We've got to give him credit for giving him a go, and then we'll laugh at him because he was trying to send postcards by rocket post. But he had, you know, it's the same principle, just applied in different situations. I'm Caitlin Doty, and you're listening to Little Adams, a podcast about ideas and culture. Can we talk about sperm whales and how sperm whales survive <laughs> diving too? Um, whale, whales are awesome, and they sperm whales are known for being some of the deepest hunters of the toothed whales. Whales are kind of split into two: the baleen whales, which are some massive, great big herbivores, you know, blue whales and fin whales, and then the ones uh, like the orcas that have teeth and are active hunters. And the sperm whales hunt giant squid and they can do it the the depths at which they hunt can be anywhere from 500 meters to two kilometers the sperm whale has a problem really because it's a mammal it breathes air and that means it's it's out up at the surface breathing air that's all fine and then it's got to go down and find this squid and it's got lungs and so here's the problem is that water has a significant amount of weight and you only have to go down 10 meters before you've got a whole extra atmosphere and if you increase the pressure on the whale's lungs that means they're going to shrink the volume is going to decrease because of these gas laws. And so that means that as the whale goes down in the water, its lungs are shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. The pressure inside is going up and up and up. And the problem is that gases like oxygen, for example, become poisonous above a certain pressure. So this whale has a problem. It wants to go down to get the squid, but if it goes down too deep and its lungs just get squished, then it'll poison itself. So what the whale does is very clever. It stores, when it's at the surface, it's not just breathing into its lungs, it's storing oxygen in its muscles, which is why whale meat is very deep red. And then as soon as it starts to dive, it basically shuts off its lungs. So they can't poison it anymore. Uh, So the lungs shrink to some tiny 
fraction of their initial volume uh, because there isn't enough gas on the inside to push outwards. Uh, and the whale is basically hunting on the energy, on the oxygen in its muscles. And then it, it doesn't run out of breath. It runs out of muscle oxygen. And then it has to go back up to the surface. But the thing is that the problem the sperm whale has is the opposite of the popcorn problem. In the case of popcorn, you heat something up and things have to get bigger. In the case of the whale, you've got this enormous pressure making things smaller, and that pressure is going to poison you. So, But it's all basically, it's the same thing. It happens because all the gases is molecules that are moving around, bouncing into each other like bumper cars. The hotter they are, the faster they go. The more they hit the walls, and the faster they hit the walls, the harder they push. And that explains all of these things. It's amazing. Now, we are going to move on from uh, gas and, and pressure, I promise, in a moment. But I just want to talk about one other thing, which you've already mentioned, cataphatic winds. Oh, yeah. And I want to talk about them mainly because I like saying it. Right. Whoever was classifying <laughs> things that day had a, had a really good day. Cataphatic winds, what are they? So they are a consequence of, firstly, the ideal gas law and also how energy moves in and out of gas. And... They happen in different places in different ways. But over Antarctica, they're relevant because when Scott was trying to reach the South Pole, uh, when he was beaten by Amundsen, he had wind in his face all the way, which is just rotten, isn't it? You're already on the bottom of the world 100 years ago, a long way from home. You're shipped somewhere else. You're living on seal mate. And then the wind is it. You know, it's just not fair. Anyway, um, his problem was that the middle of Antarctica is quite a high plateau. It gets very cold. It doesn't snow or rain very much. It's constantly radiating heat to space. So any air in the middle cools down because it's radiating away heat. And when things, when gases cool down, the molecules move more slowly, and so they get squished in. So the volume decreases, and that means your gas becomes more dense. And then it will slither out. It'll sort of slide down to the bottom of the atmosphere and slither out like a river across the Antarctic uh, continent. And the other thing that happens is that as it slithers, it heats up because it's moving into air, uh, which is changing the amount of energy it's got. So it heats up as well. So it's got lots of things going on, but these winds are constantly coming out. They're in their face all the way. And it happens because of this relationship between the pressure and the temperature and the volume of a gas. So it causes big problems. It's not just little things like popcorn. There's big practical problems. And catabatic winds also, the Santa Ana winds in San Diego, you know, same thing, high plateau, in that case, it's hot air that then gets hotter as it comes downslope, and that's why you get Calif- uh, wildfires in California, because there's the warm Santa Ana winds, which are catabatic winds. Are sort of, it's funneled hot air, and then you've got lots of sunshine, someone lights, lights a fire, and the whole thing goes up in a, in a very dangerous way if you're living nearby. We'll move on to the next chapter. You're talking the about gravity and the, sort of mm-hmm. the various ways in which we contend with gravity in our everyday life. But I want to stay rounded about Antarctica because I want to talk about the oceans and what, what effect gravity has on the oceans, which I think is, is like less obvious to most people. Yeah, I'm glad, no one talks enough about the oceans, so I'm glad you want to talk about it. The deal with the oceans, and they are, you know, they're deep, the average depth is sort of four and a half kilometres-ish. There's a lot of space for things to happen in four and a half kilometers and so what it means is that you can get currents at different depths going in different directions moving things around and gravity is very important because the ocean the large scale motion of the ocean is quite often driven by buoyancy so if you have less dense seawater it will be up at the top or moving upwards and more dense seawater will be moving downwards and there's two things that can influence that there's the temperature of the water and the salinity so uh, cooler water is more dense saltier water is more dense so up in the North Atlantic for example as sea ice forms you get the water just underneath the sea ice becomes cooler and saltier so it sinks down slithers down the middle of the Atlantic 
um, across, sort of following the line of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge a little bit. And at some point later, it will find its way back up. But that can take a thousand years or more. So there's this very slow engine around the planet where the ocean is called thermohaline circulation, thermo for heat and haline for salinity. And it's driving an ocean engine a very, on a very slow scale. And it's all because of buoyancy. And gravity is what you need to have buoyancy. If, you didn't, if the, the oceans weren't... What, what buoyancy is, really, is um, a competition. If you put something near a planet, something as big as a planet... The thing that is most dense is going to find its way to the bottom because it's being pulled on more. And that's really important. And it doesn't just work in the oceans. The internal convection of our planet is also a buoyancy-driven flow. And so is the atmosphere. That's full of buoyancy-driven flows. But they happen, you know, inside the planet, it can take 50 million years to go around. The oceans take a couple of thousand. The atmosphere can do it in a day or two. And so it's the same principle all that starts off with gravity pulling on things that causes all these different patterns. In this book, was a, you take a trip to Tower Bridge, to like the, uh, the underground, the inside secret parts of Tower Bridge. Highly recommended as a thing to do that. Yeah, I've never done it, and it sounds really exciting. And this is to show how, you know, we would, how we might think Tower Bridge raises up is not necessarily the case. Well, the clever... So the thing is that gravity can work both for you and against you, right? That's, that's why it's worth understanding, because it can solve some of the problems it causes. So if you've got a bridge, like... So Tower Bridge is a, it's a road bridge. It, it kind of breaks in half in the middle, and the two halves lift up to either side to let big ships go underneath. And the problem you've got is it takes a lot of force. It's a massive, great big lever. It takes a huge amount of force to lift that up. But the Victorians realised that they could help themselves out here because what you can't see when you look at Tower Bridge, so imagine these two halves of the road bridge lifting up. If you go back down to the pivot point, on the other side, there is another big arm sticking out, for, you know, sort of underneath the road, and that is going down as the road bit is going up. And what that means is that instead of needing lots of force to push up on your road bridge, you have cancelled that out by having gravity pushing down on the other end. And so basically the engines that lift and close that bridge, all they have to do is just give it a bit of a push. It's perfectly balanced, perfectly balanced. So the gravitational pull is the same on both sides. The torque, the overall torque is the same on both sides. And all they have to do is just push it to move it. And they've got this enormous, there's this kind of, like you walk down into this cavern, this brick cavern that the Victorians built, which is where the other side of the seesaw is going down. And up above you, it's sort of rattling a bit. And there's this tiny, it's, it's like a giant beanbag up there made of bits of pig iron. And they every year they go up there and they check, they add a few or they take a few away. So it's exactly perfectly, perfectly balanced. Um, and so it's a really clever way of getting around the problem of gravity is you use gravity against itself. And you say they add or take away. That mean might be because, you know, they've, they've redone the yellow lines yep. up the road or somebody's put a speed bump yeah, or yeah. something. So they have to keep making sure... Yeah, the but it's very exactly balanced. And then it was driven originally by hydraulic power. So... Maybe it still is. I think it might still be. But the original hydraulic... So Tower Bridge has these other little towers that are a bit further out. And that's where the hydraulic pumps were. So, there, so just a tiny bit of a push. And, and up, it's like lifts, the counterweight in lifts, right? Instead of using all the energy to haul up a lift, you just put another weight on the other side and give it a little bit of a push. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's clever. And the, the great thing about the Victorians, and the, the reason I like Tower Bridge, is that they just went, here's a principle, let's just make it bigger. There was no sort of, uh, there was no, oh, we have to make this pompous or clever in some way. They just went, oh, well, here's a good idea. We'll just make a gigantic one. And I like that kind of, you know, just commitment to the cause. And it works. It was built well over 100 years ago, and it still works. You should celebrate yourself every day. 
But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Atoms. I'm Neil Denny and I'm talking to Helen Chersky. We're talking about storming a teacup, the physics of everyday life. And actually, Helen, we're going to talk about a coffee cup rather than a teacup to start off the second part. So we're going to get on to talk about the, well, the chapters about the world are the very small. But why does it start with a coffee cup? Uh, so I have to confess, not really being a coffee drinker, I, I do buy coffee. I buy it mostly to spill it, which I'm sure all the coffee snobs will be appalled by. Sorry. But there is this thing that, you know, the the nice thing about a lot of the everyday physics is that we've seen the thing. We just haven't really had reason to think about what's going on. When you spill coffee, deliberately or otherwise, you get a little shape, a little sort of splodge on the table, which is fine. It's a filled in shape. That's what coffee spill looks like. When you leave it and come back a couple of hours later, what you find is that it's sort of become the outline, like a sort of crime scene thing from the 1970s. You know, it's lying around the outside. So all the coffee that was in the middle has gone to the outside, which is a bit weird. And yet no one questions it, right? There are desks in this country covered with rings from coffee. And, that's just, you know, no one ever asked the question. So what's going on is really interesting. And it's got something to do with the fact that there are lots of different physical laws, patterns that can apply in different situations. And they, they're all there all of the time. But if you shift something, and it's usually either size or temperature, different ones become dominant. And so if you make things smaller, so up where we live, gravity and electromagnetism basically run things. And things like surface tension and viscosity, they're a bit weedy, so they don't really... But if you make things a bit smaller, something, you know, perhaps about the size of a little speck of coffee in a coffee cup, gravity basically doesn't matter anymore. It's just so... There's such a tiny speck, there's so little pull 
you know, forget it. So the other forces that were there all along but didn't matter suddenly start to make a difference. And in the case of getting... So this is not as small as quantum stuff. This is, you know, just on the edge of what we can see, for example, the smallest thing we can see. Then surface tension and viscosity starts to become the world of them. They get their moment. And what's happening in the coffee is that um, surface tension, something called the Marangoni effect, is actually pulling as the coffee evaporates... It's the edge of the uh, spill is sort of pinned. It can't dry. The table can't just dry up. So it has to stay wet around the edges. But there's a bit more area around the edges because of the curve. And so it evaporates faster there. So the liquid from the middle flows outwards towards the edges and it just takes the coffee with it. And so things get carried around because of surface tension and viscosity. And that matters because not only does it make towels work, for example, but it's also the basis of a lot of modern medical tests. So if you have the sort of test where you put a drop of blood on a sort of, you know, absorbent bit of paper and it changes colour or something like that, you can take that principle and you can make it much more sophisticated. You've got little pipes for the blood to go through. So maybe you can have five different diagnostic tests on the same bit of paper. And people are building this technology. And it's driven by these tiny forces. The fact that when you make things small, surface tension and viscosity are suddenly kings of the world. And so the things you get from a coffee stain, you know, you, you just you keep playing. And it's what makes treat, you know, redwoods, the size of a giant redwood is limited by the physics at that scale. And so the world of the small is very important. Well, staying with sort of the theme of the coffee, what's happened to the cream in our milk? Oh, yeah, it's no fun, this, is it? So when I, I'm probably dating myself here, ageing myself, whatever it is. When I was a kid, I remember there used to be glass milk bottles and the milkman would turn up every morning and there'd be this sort of very familiar clink of glass on brick as the glass, you know, put the milk bottle down. And then the trick was you had to get to the milk very quickly after the milkman had left it because otherwise the blue tits would be in there. And the blue tits learn the colours. If you had full-fat milk, which was a silver foil cover... That would have whole, they would be straight through that. If you had skimmed milk, which might have been red or blue, I can't remember, um, they'd leave that alone. And the reason is that the cream did what it's supposed to do and it rose to the top and the blue tits worked out that if they pecked through it, there was basically not just lunch or dinner, but a three-course feast was sitting right underneath the foil. Uh, and so they learned and they learned from each other. And blue tits all over Britain were taking it, getting the milk, the cream from the milk. But the thing is, if you buy milk today, in the way that, you know, the modern world is all very wonderful, but sometimes it just becomes a bit boring, the cream doesn't rise to the top anymore. It's very dull. And there's a very specific reason that it doesn't. So droplets of fat in cream are little blobs, basically, and they are uh, less dense than the, the water that's around them. And so if you leave, if you take milk out of a cow commonly known as milking, I think, put it in a, a beaker and, and just leave it, those little fat globules will they're less buoyant than what's around them, so they'll just rise to the top creams at the top but modern milk methods now squish up they homogenize the milk which means they take those fat droplets and basically chop them and chop them and chop them so they're really tiny and suddenly they're so small that gravity is no longer enough to pull them upwards or to you know to pull everything else downwards because the drag is too big and so they don't rise to the top anymore so so because the fat droplets got smaller the cream doesn't rise to the top which is extremely sad <laughs> Um, I want to take us back to, to bubbles, particularly around surface tension, and I want to talk about an unsung hero that you talk about in the book. Uh, I'm going to pronounce the name wrong, I'm sure. Agnes Pockles. Agnes Pockles, yes. Oh, that's okay. It is uh, Agnes Pockles. Who, who is one of those, you know, there's a lot of, 
it's, history is a difficult thing because you you often rely on the written record and it's hard to to find out who was doing what if they weren't the ones doing the writing. As, as Churchill said, history will be kind to me for I intend to write it. And often the women weren't the ones doing the writing, so they don't get hurt. But Agnes Pockles was a really interesting case. She lived in Germany. Her brother had been sent off to university to study physics. She wasn't allowed to go. She had to stay in the kitchen and do all the work. And so she did what resourceful, interested women do, which is that she used what was around her to to sort of investigate and to get done what she wanted to get done. And she learned from her brother coming back from university. And one of the things she was very interested in is surface tension, uh, which is this, the concept, if you have a liquid, the surface behaves a little bit like an elastic skin, it can pull on things sideways. And she couldn't have proper labs, but she could do experiments in her kitchen. And she did, she made some very, and this was at a period when, you know, the Victorians were sort of discovering how wonderful bubbles were. They they did like soap bubbles because they were perfectly clean and they went along with all this Victorian morality. Um, Not, you know, nothing to do with all the Victorian immorality apparently but anyway they liked them because they were white and perfect and there's a few of the perfect world so Agnes did experiments she measured some things to do with surface tension very clever experiment she had a button on a string and she if the button sat flat on the water she could work out how hard you had to pull it to get it away from the water and she wrote a paper on this she kept up as well as she could with the science of the day and she wrote to Lord Rowley who was definitely in there in the fashionable set And he, to his credit, took her letter and sent it to the Royal Society and asked them to publish it, or Nature, and said, um, there's this thing in the start which says, um, you know, I'm presenting you the work of this humble German housewife who has had some very good ideas, similar to some of my own. He did say that. But she had done something he hadn't done. Uh, And the paper is in Nature, and she'd made these investigations about the nature of surface tension. And she did that in her kitchen. You know, this was citizen science long before the term had been invented. But she was bright, she had the materials, and she could do these experiments. I want to talk about a, a couple of aspects of time, and specifically to begin with. Why does it take ages to get ketchup out of the bottle? Oh, yeah. Well, it's quite sad now, isn't it, that yeah, ketchup yeah. bottles tend to, be, t- tend to be squeezy, which takes all the fun away, honestly. But... Glass. In fact, one of the interesting things about writing this book is that a lot of the best examples were ten, are 10 years old because people have now invented other modern technology which takes the fun out of it, which does make me worry about how future people will play with the world. But anyway, in the days where you had proper glass ketchup bottles, there was this very familiar sort of happening in a pub which someone you know, would get their chips or whatever and the bottle of ketchup would be plonked down. And then there was a game of how you get the ketchup out of the bottle onto the chips. And what would happen is that people would turn the bottle upside down and they'd shake it and it wouldn't do anything. they hit the bottom of the glass bottle and nothing happens. they shake it even harder. Everybody else sort of leans back to keep out of the way. Uh, and eventually, basically, all of the ketchup comes out of the bottle at once. And it happens because ketchup, the viscosity of ketchup is really interesting. So viscosity is kind of how thick and sludgy things are. Uh, and ketchup is quite thick, sludgy stuff. It's very viscous. But it has this property called sheer thinning, which means that once you get it moving, once you get ketchup flowing past other ketchup, it suddenly becomes runny. And so what you're doing when you start to shake the bottle is it's not the ketchup isn't moving relative to other ketchup, so it's just thick sludge. But eventually you shake it hard enough that it does start to move. And once it starts to flow, it's suddenly all the viscosity or a lot of the viscosity goes away and suddenly you've got a liquid which can rush out of the bottle and deposit half the bottle all over your chips. So the solution is not to hit the other end of it. Because once you know, once you've identified the problem, then you can find the solution. So the problem, the solution is not to wallop the bottom of the bottle even harder. It's to hold the bottle at an angle and tap on the neck. 
because then the bit of the ketchup that you make less viscous is the bit right by the neck and the rest of it is still thick and sludgy so it stays where it is so um, and these shear thinning liquids uh, non-Newtonian fluids which is the technical word for them are quite common so our blood is one toothpaste is another there's a lot of we can swallow partly because of non-Newtonian you know our saliva is non-Newtonian so uh, and they help snails move. You know, so there's all this sort of... Once you've got the principle, you can use it in lots of different places. And the other thing I'd like to talk about in regards to time is an experiment by a guy called Barry Frost. Oh, it's brilliant, this one, isn't it? Pigeon, yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is one of those wonderful questions that kids ask. And the parents are just like, I don't know, just, you know, go back to playing with your toys. So pigeons bob their heads, right? If you walk anywhere near... Well, not Trafalgar Square, now they've got a kestrel or whatever it is, Falcon. But, um... You know, pigeons bob their heads. It's weird, right? But there is a really good reason that pigeons bob their heads. And the guy who demonstrated what it was was this guy, Barry Frost. And he did it by putting a pigeon on a treadmill. So when pigeons walk, their heads sort of bobbed backwards and forwards. And he he looked at that. Uh, he Then he put a pigeon on a treadmill. So the treadmill was moving forward at the same speed that the pigeon was walking. So it, the pigeon wasn't moving, right, relative to its surroundings. And the pigeon didn't bob its head. And what he deduced from this was that the reason... What the pigeon is actually doing is it's not bobbing its head forwards and backwards. What it's doing is shoving its head out forwards and then the rest of its body walks to catch up and then it shoves its head out forwards again. And the reason it does that is that pigeons, it seems, see relatively slowly. They need to have the same view for quite a long time. And if you're moving continuously, your view keeps changing. So what they do is shove their head out forwards and it stays where it is and it gets a nice view of what's going on and then the pigeon catches up and then it goes forward again. So a pigeon sees is snapshots. And the reason that's interesting... Oh, and there's this wonderful bit. So, so he demonstrated that the reason the pigeon didn't, uh, didn't bob its head on the treadmill because it didn't need to because its surroundings weren't moving. But then there's this wonderful bit in the paper where... He says, uh, he says once they switched the treadmill off, but they didn't completely switch it off. And after a while, what they noticed was that the pigeon's head was just stretching out, stretching out further and further and forwards to keep up with the strands until the pigeon fell over, which is just this brilliant image. Because if I was them, I wouldn't have done that once. They wrote it in the paper like they were like, oh dear, I'd have been doing that all day. Anyway... But the point is, it takes time to see and to process. And we're, we might laugh at the pigeon, but we're only a little bit faster. And the point of telling that story is that there's a lot of time to play with that's faster than the way we, the speed we deal with the world. And, you know, the pigeon's only a little bit slower than us. In lots of other ways, we are effectively like the pigeon. We're dealing with information coming to us. It's taking us a long time to process it. The physical world is getting on with it really, really quickly all, all around us. And it's just that we don't notice because we're quite slow and complicated. But, you know, that's why things like computers seem like magic. It's not that they're going that fast. It's just that we're so slow that they've got all this time to do things in before we notice. Um, we're about out of time. I just wanted to finish with one other question, which is, as it happens, one of the uh, chapter titles of the book, Why Don't Ducks Get Cold Feet? Uh, ducks are very... Ducks have some fascinating physiology, and you will often see them, especially in the winter, sort of toddling around on ice, and, you know, it's cold. We're all dressed up in hats and wool and things. And then um, the duck's just toddling around with its bare feet on the ice, which must be really uncomfortable. Except it isn't. There's two problems with it, right? One is why, it's, why don't its feet freeze? The second thing is why doesn't that cool the rest of the duck down so much that it just keels over from hypothermia? And the answer is that the duck's doing something really clever. It's, 
it's using this law of physics that uh, heat moves from the hot thing to the cold thing. And so down its legs, down each leg. It's not like that joke um, about the circulation where some uh, school kid apparently wrote that the, the way the circulation works is it goes down one leg and up the other. It happens in the same, both ways in the same leg. And, um, but the artery and the vein, the bit going down, the bit going up, are right next to each other. And so as the blood goes down the leg, it's heating up the blood coming up the other way. And as it goes further and further down the leg, the blood going down gets cooler and cooler and the blood going up gets warmer and warmer. Uh, and down you get the feet. The feet are at sort of five degrees or whatever it is. And both, both the going up and going down are then at five degrees. But then as soon as the blood starts coming up, it starts being heated up by the heat coming the other way from the artery. Uh, and by the time it gets back into the middle of the duct, it's more or less duct temperature again. And this thing is called a countercurrent heat exchanger. And it's a really clever way of using, you know, using physics, which... So all that happens in that system is that energy, heat energy flows from the hot thing to the cold thing. And yet that means that the body of a duck can be at 40 degrees, whatever it is, and its feet can be at five, and the duck is totally fine. That's where we're going to have to finish up. There's absolutely tons more of this sort of stuff in, <laughs> in Helen's book, which is Storm in a Teacup, The Physics of Everyday Life. It's out now from Bantam Press. Helen Chesky, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with me. Thank you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.